word of the Lord. For the past two weeks, we have looked at the few stories we have of Jesus's early life. Two weeks ago, we read Luke's famous account of Christ being born in the manger. Last week, we read Luke's account of Christ's presentation in the temple. This was a custom in the Torah for all Jewish families to offer and consecrate their firstborn sons to God. And this week, we're fast forwarding 12 years later to Jesus as a boy. And we have these stories because of one of Jesus's followers named Luke. He was a doctor, he was a physician, and he interviewed eyewitnesses in Jesus' life who saw what Jesus did and taught. Now, scholars think that Luke interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, for these stories because we're told over and over in these stories about Jesus's early life that Mary pondered or treasured these things in her heart. What better eyewitness could Luke have had for Jesus's early life than his own mother? Now, when I was preparing these, this sermon, uh, I wondered why did one of the earliest followers of Jesus think that it was important for us to know these stories? Why did he think we should learn about the conception and birth and infancy and boyhood of Jesus? Other disciples like Mark and John and Peter and Paul didn't think it was essential for us to know these stories of Christ's early days. So why not skip the childish stories? for the mature, fully grown Jesus. If you're watching this and you're not a Christian, you might wonder the same thing. Why should you take the words of a 12-year-old seriously? You may be able to listen to the man Jesus, but why should you care about the boy? And besides, isn't religion just for adults? If a boy or girl is raised to go to church or even synagogue or the mosque for that matter, their faith is usually described as forced or coerced. Their parents just made them go to church. Some of us think that faith is just a grown-ups game, so we don't take children all that seriously, and we don't take this story all that seriously. If you've heard a preacher address this story in Luke's gospel, you've probably heard that the takeaway that was that Jesus was just a precocious young boy. The preacher might have said, kids just say the darndest things. But I don't think that's how we're supposed to read this story. At the very least, I think that there is a better way to understand it. So if you have a Bible uh, with you at home, turn to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'll have the verses available for you. Now, we've already seen that Jesus' parents are devout and pious Jews. On the eighth day of Jesus's life, his parents circumcised him as the Torah instructed. When he was a month old, they presented him in the temple as the Torah instructed. And now we're told in the first verse of this section, every year, Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, which means like any good Jewish family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus went on a yearly trip to the hub of Jewish life and worship, the temple in Jerusalem. And at Passover, if you don't know what that is, they celebrated the liberation of Jews from slavery in Egypt centuries before Jesus was born. And this wasn't just a memory of a great event in their people's past. Passover was almost like a prayer for God to liberate them in the present. 
So they go to this every single year. We're not told what happens at this festival. We're actually told what happens after the festival. While his parents, Mary and Joseph, were returning home, that is to Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, the boy Jesus actually stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a whole day. But then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, any parent who has lost one of their kids at a restaurant or something like that can sympathize with Mary and Joseph. At some point, they both assumed that the other had Jesus with them, and they both go looking for Jesus, and Mary says, Joseph, you have the Son of God, right? And Joseph says, no, I thought you had the Son of God, and they both realize they don't have the Son of God, and so they turn the suburban around and drive back to Jerusalem to find him. And for two days, they search for him and are unsuccessful, but after three days, they finally find him. And they find him in the temple courts. He's sitting among the teachers, he's listening to them, and he's asking them questions. Now, in American context, students sit in desks and teachers stand at the front of the class. But in Jewish context, the teachers sit. So Jesus is not sitting at the feet of teachers learning from them. He is sitting among the teachers as one of them. A typical rabbi would teach his disciples by asking them challenging questions. And it turns out that Jesus is doing that here. He's asking good questions. He's being a rabbi. And not only is he asking good questions, he's giving great answers. We're told that everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, I, I love to picture this scene. This 12-year-old is sitting among the teachers. He's asking the other rabbis questions. And when he gets a stunned and awkward silence, he answers his own questions for them. He's just a boy. And he's schooling them. Now, Mary interrupts Jesus' lecture and he asks, then she asks him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, there's one way of reading that question as accusatory, as if Mary was some kind of helicopter mom scolding the Son of God. But I think that Mary has spent enough time with Jesus in the past 12 years to know that he does marvelous things, and she wants to know why he's doing this thing in particular. And Jesus' response is very calm. He says, why were you searching for me? I have to be in my father's house. In other words... Where else would you look but here? Now, the temple in Jerusalem was known as the house of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying something quite profound here. He's saying the temple is not just the house of the Lord, it's the house of my father, which means that the Lord is his father. Even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus is making a profound theological statement. The relationship between him and God is not of creator and creature, but of father and son. I think that this shows that there's more going on than Jesus just being above average in his class. He is being depicted by Luke as the wisdom of God come to teach us. 
We're in chapter two, but if you go back to chapter one, you'll see these themes over and over again. People are confused when Jesus comes. They don't fully grasp it. They don't fully comprehend what he's up to. At the beginning of the gospel, Mary can't fully understand what the angel Gabriel is saying to her. When Mary visits Elizabeth, Elizabeth is shocked that the Lord is in Mary's womb and that the Lord would come to her. Joseph, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, almost divorces Mary because he's so out of the loop. We see this theme over and over in Luke's gospel, and it persists in Christ's life. No one comes along just nodding to whatever Jesus says. He's constantly raising eyebrows and he's puzzling his audience. Even his closest 12 disciples barely understand more than the crowds. Jesus is constantly pulling them aside and he's saying, do you not yet understand what I mean? Later on in the gospel, Jesus will ask his opponents questions and he constantly stumps them. They they can't even give any response to him because they're speechless. They have no words to say back to his devastating questions. The boy Jesus being presented by Luke is not just a child prodigy. He is being depicted as God's wisdom in the flesh. That's why Luke doesn't skip these stories and go to the fully grown adult man, Jesus. And this is why God didn't skip the beginning of human life and just appear as a fully formed human. God wanted to show us just how desperately we are in need of his wisdom because even as a boy, Jesus outsmarts our best and brightest. As Paul once said, Christ is the wisdom of God and the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. This seemingly immature, little, small, 12-year-old boy is a sage among fools. And that's what we are. We are fools groping around in the dark. We think we know more than we do. We assume that all we don't know isn't all that important. And we assume what we do know makes us important people. We seek out opinions just to confirm our preconceived notions and biases. We see the physical world around us, but we don't look for spiritual meaning within that world. We think only to five years from our li- in our lives, or maybe we look to the end of our lives, but no point past it. Our imaginations are small, our perception is limited, and we need some divine schooling. And that's a problem for us. Because in our culture, we love certain experts. Think about how often we place in the front of a sentence, you know, studies show. We put unabashed trust in sources, like a quick internet search. And even when we want to be countercultural, even when we don't want to necessarily trust all the experts, we listen to podcasts or read books only because it goes against the narrative. But we're so often duped and deluded, even by our beloved experts. We think we're in the know. We're obsessed with having all the information at our fingertips. But we're still fools. Like John's gospel says, Jesus the light came into the world and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not understand it. Some of your translations might say, could not overcome it, but they're both good translations. The darkness can't understand the light. Just think back to Adam and Eve. This is the original sin. 
Instead of listening to God, they listen to the serpent who is called wise and cunning and they go to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They seek a source of wisdom outside God. But Jesus, he shows us how foolish we are because even his foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. His boyhood is more mature than our adulthood. He asks his parents, where else would you look for me? The most obvious place is in the temple, teaching all of these guys. Of course I would be teaching. That's what I came to do. That's who I am. I am the wisdom of God in your midst. I just think that this is why our faith is so beautiful and so compelling. Being a Christian is not just for grown-ups. Our Lord himself told us we must welcome little children, and if we put a stumbling block in their path, we might as well jump in the ocean with a millstone around our neck. The children's ministry at this church is not to babysit kids in the same building where the grown-ups worship. Being raised in church and being raised in faith, being raised as a Christian is not a lie. It's not playing pretend. It doesn't finally become real when you turn the magical age of 18 as if you understood everything when you are 18. The seed of faith that grows throughout childhood is real faith. Jesus explicitly told us, even as adults, to become as little children. Because if we don't, we will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he doesn't mean we should be intentionally immature, that we should throw fits like toddlers. Paul says to put childish things behind us, to be sanctified over time more and more, to move from milk to solid foods. There's a place for maturing and growing in discipleship as we get older. But I think Jesus means that we shouldn't ever think we've grown up past God's wisdom. This is why the concept of adulthood can sometimes be misleading because it can create this false expectation in us that at some point we've pretty much got things figured out. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this. He's the author of these best-selling children's books about Narnia. And he says, critics who treat the word adult as a term of approval instead of as a merely descriptive term cannot be adults themselves. He says, when I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. When we become adopted sons and daughters of God, That's the goal. We're not trying to grow up past that. And because we're all children of God and we never outgrow our heavenly father, we're all in the position of being educated and taught and corrected by Jesus. And I love this about Christ. He draws both the educated and the unlearned. Christianity has always compelled both intellectuals and commoners, kings and peasants, elites, and those on the margins. So if you're a book nerd, if you're a philosopher and you want a bottomless well of theology which never runs dry, welcome to Christianity. It doesn't matter how smart you are, you can continue to learn our faith. Many Christians watching this video have at some point returned to a passage in the Bible that they've read a million times and they finally see something that they've always missed. And yet, even while Christianity is for the intellectuals. Degrees have never been required to be a Christian. 
Some of the greatest Christians who ever lived were of not great status. They often left behind wealth and reputation and education in order to forsake all of those worldly goods and serve God and God alone. It is true that Christianity is a bottomless well, but at the same time, it is remarkably simple. It can be summarized in a single verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's it. That's Christianity. It can also be simple. You don't have to go to college to be a Christian. You can follow Christ before you comprehend him. That's the beauty of Christianity. It is faith seeking understanding. You can trust Jesus before you understand him. And that is great news because if God required great understanding, he would still be waiting. And this this actually all makes perfect sense when we begin to think about God. I mean, what kind of religion would have a God who is small enough to fit in our brains? That's no God at all. That's just a projection of what we want in God. And on the other hand, what kind of God who claims to be loving would require high IQs to be his child? Only a cruel father would be so unjust. That's why I think Christianity is the best religion. Our best and brightest can only come up with a dim representation of God, but our simplest and smallest boys and girls can have a keen awareness of who Jesus is. An intellectual giant like Thomas Aquinas, who spent his whole life writing a systematic theology, one day has a vision of God and he says, all of my writing is like straw by comparison. And yet Mary, who came from poverty, who's a nobody, she finds favor with God and is now one of the most famous women who ever lived. This is why Luke tells us these stories. This is why Luke didn't skip all of the stories of his conception and his birth and his uh, infancy and boyhood. Luke wants us to know that God did not wait for us to wisen up while we were still fools the wisdom of God came to teach us. Now, the boy who once schooled all those rabbis in the temple eventually does grow up. He becomes a teacher. And he teaches as one who had authority. And those who were already in charge couldn't accept his teachings, so they plot to kill him. And they crucify him at the festival of the Passover, which just so happens to be the same season in the background of this story. And after his crucifixion, his disciples go looking for him at the tomb, but they can't find him, just like Joseph and Mary couldn't find Jesus in Jerusalem. When Mary finally stumbles upon Jesus, Jesus says, why are you searching for me? The angels say to the women at the empty tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead. On the third day, Mary and Joseph finally found Jesus in the temple. And on the third day, Sunday, Easter Sunday, the disciples finally found the man Jesus raised from the dead. Luke makes all these connections between Jesus in the temple and Jesus at his resurrection because he wants us to know that the same wisdom of God who died and rose again on the third day, who couldn't be found by his own disciples, was once a boy 
misplaced by his own parents, in the temple teaching fools who need his instructions. And we're the same today, fools in need of his instruction. As the prophet Isaiah says, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? The answer is no one. 